Hello, you're listening to a podcast from Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Radio Maria is a 24-7 Catholic radio station broadcasting online via our app, Radio Maria Play, and on DAB in an increasing number of areas. You can follow us on social media. And if you enjoy this program, please do click like and subscribe to us on your podcast provider. Radio Maria relies entirely upon listener donations. We have no other sources of funding, so please do consider supporting us with a monthly or one-off donation so that we can continue to keep providing great programming free at the point of access. To donate or find out more, visit us at radiomariaengland.uk. Good morning, you're listening to Radio Maria England. This is Just Life and I'm Anna Whitehead and I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Catholic journalist and author Simon Caldwell. The first time I saw Dr Reinhard Klein was at the inquest into the death of Ray Parker, a man whose family claimed had died prematurely because of medical negligence. As soon as he entered the courtroom, I knew he was a big guy. I don't mean that he was tall. He wasn't. He was probably less than six feet. But I recognised instantly that here was a big man in a metaphysical sense. He strolled in and owned the room. What makes some people like that? Magnetism, charisma, confidence. Klein had these qualities by the bucket load. He was good-looking too, and he knew it. His lush brown hair was slicked tidily back. His navy suit was immaculately tailored, following the contours of his gym-toned physique as perfectly as a coat of paint. You know, if I could have touched Dr. Klein on any part of his body, I think I'd have felt silk. 100% Mulberry Grade 6A 22 Mom Silk. With these words spoken through the character of freelance journalist Jenny Bradshaw, Catholic author Simon Caldwell, a journalist himself, opens Chapter 1 of his debut thriller, The Beast of Bethulia Park. Now, this book was published late last year by Grace Wing Publishing, an English Catholic publishing house, uh, which does not normally deal with fiction, but whose editorial director saw in this work a theological depth that perhaps put it in a similar category to the stories of Graham Greene or G.K. Chesterton. Certainly, Catholic themes are never too far away in the world that Caldwell creates. The prologue, for example, is set in the aftermath of the martyrdom of St. John Plessington in Chester, in 1679, before the story moves abruptly to the courts, hospital, pubs, parks and churches of present-day England, where, in the words of Canadian Catholic journalist Anna Farrow, who has reviewed the book, it unfolds into a fast-paced modern mystery play, replete with stumbling heroes and bloodthirsty villains, a wild romp that includes fistfights, love interests, and the pursuit of a pair of murderous doctors and a careful study of human agents navigating the present-day moral landscape. It is the Britain, Farrow writes, of gamers, pornography, Tesco grocery stores, and the NHS. And a country, she also notes, which is under the grip of what Pope St John Paul II described as the culture of death. Farrow is not the only critic to praise the Beast of Bethulia Park. Dr Pravin Thevastarsan, writing in the Catholic Medical Quarterly, described it as an excellent work of fiction, while Georgia Jill Holly, in a review for the Catholic Herald, said, it might just be the most believable thriller on our shelves this year. I found myself devouring the book in one sitting. The novel is also beginning to receive modest literary acclaim in the US, where last month it was hailed as a Catholic tale for summer, and where reviewer Elizabeth Scalia wrote that, the need for Catholic fiction that manages to entertain in a more populist vein while managing to still love the church, makes the novel a welcome diversion for Catholics looking for a paperback and a hammock in the shade. So what is this story about? Well, the blurb of the book gives us a bit of a clue. When Ray Parker dies unexpectedly in Bethulia Park Hospital, his suspicious family launch a campaign for justice, it says. They recruit the young and idealistic hospital chaplain, Father Colvin Baines, 
to find a beautiful nurse who might unmask the doctor they believe is guilty of murder. When Emerald Essain enters his life, the priest finds his high principles are put to the test, in a way which drives him to the edge of despair as he is propelled into a dark world of sexual obsession, danger and death. It is fair to say that The Beast of Bethulia Park draws heavily, of the, draws heavily on the journalism of the author, who as a freelance journalist has done a lot of work over the last decade, mainly for the Daily Mail, but also for the Mail on Sunday, the Sunday Times and the Daily Telegraph, in exposing the deadly abuses of patients under flawed end-of-life care protocols. He interviewed families of patients said to have been killed by med medical negligence, or worse, spoke to whistleblowing doctors, attended inquests, and conducted his own research into how such protocols were being implemented. It forms one of several strands of The Beast of Bethulia Park. Another is the author's Catholic faith, which informs the plot and subplots and the development of his characters, both the heroic and the villainous. Simon joins us today to talk about the novel The Beast of Bethulia Park and to share his thoughts about Catholic literature in the 21st century more generally. We're delighted to have you on air here on Radio Maria and we'll hand over the airwaves um, to you, Simon. Good morning. Good morning, Anna. It's lovely to join you on this wonderful solemnity of the Sacred Heart. In autumn last year, I published The Beast of Bethulia Park, my debut thriller. If you have not already done so, I hope you might read it yourself. It's available from the publisher Gracewing, from Amazon and all other digital platforms, and by order from any bookshop, and sometimes in store. In the first six months of its life, it has won a modest amount of literary acclaim, being likened by the editor of the Catholic Herald, for instance, to the early thrillers of Graham Greene. The title of the book, its mooded cover, and the image of a large syringe standing upright like some weapon of mass destruction, has sometimes prompted people to ask me if this is a horror or a ghost story. Others think the title is redolent of The Hound of the Baskerals and wonder if it is detective fiction, or have strongly suggested that it should be, <clears throat> and that the chief protagonist, the hospital chaplain, chaplain Father Calvin Baines, could develop into a priest detective like Father Brown, or the Vicars of Grantchester in books to come. One might read this novel expecting to find something akin to, the work, to a work by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, or by G.K. Chesterton, only to discover a story close to the kind told by Green, or on screen by Alfred Hitchcock. Principally, it's a thriller, and probably, I think, best described as a psychological thriller because it's a concern not only with the afflictions of the body, but also of the mind and the soul. It can also be fairly described as a Catholic novel, and indeed a 21st century Catholic novel. Certainly it is highly contemporary, set for the most part in 2019, except for the prologue and epilogue, which take place during the Oates plot hysteria of the 17th century, and which are crucial to the subplot and to the development of the main story. Had I not been such a rookie when I sat down to write the story in the autumn of 2020, I might have decided on a genre, but I didn't. It was a question which I considered largely after I'd finished the first draft. Very back to front, I admit. I simply had in mind a thumping contemporary murder yarn that I wanted to tell. Drawing on my experience as a freelance journalist, researching and reporting exclusives for the Daily Mail, about neg medical ne negligence and abuses carried out under the Liverpool Care Pathway and similar end-of-life care protocols. And as a Catholic journalist with my own theory about a real-life historical murder mystery involving an ancient set of unidentified bones. When I sat down to write, um, we were about to enter the second lockdown of that awful year, and I had spent much of the first reading a lot of contemporary fiction again for the first time in years. Perhaps I was reading the wrong stuff, I don't know, but I kept coming away disaffected and deflated by tedious politicised messaging, unreal two-dimensional characters and scenarios, and by the routine celebration of evil that I found there, even when such books were touted as bestsellers, with rave review reviews in the media, and thousands of plaudits on digital marketing platforms. Many of these works were well-crafted, beautifully written and clever, but it was all too often difficult to resist the conclusion that there was something missing from them or somehow they were not quite right. I often flirted with the idea of writing a book and with a story developing in my mind, time on my hands and lots of opinions about what a book should look like, I decided I should attempt to write the sort of book I would wish to read myself. Yes, I didn't sit down to write a Catholic novel as such. Indeed, according to Jacques Maritain, the 20th century French Catholic philosopher, such a project is not the sort of thing one can consciously decide to do. 
Rather, it flows from the writer by virtue of being a believing and practicing Christian. Writing in Arts and Scholasticism, Maritain notes that Christian art is doubly difficult, doubly difficult, fourfold difficult, because it is difficult to be an artist and very difficult to be a Christian. And because the total difficulty is not simply the sum, but the product of these two difficulties multiplied by one another. Christianity does not make art easy, he explains. It deprives it of many facile means. It bars its course at many places, but in order to raise its level. At the same time that Christianity creates these salutary difficulties, it super elevates art from within, reveals to it a hidden beauty which is more delicious than light. It wasn't easy to write The Beast of Epithelia Park, and what drove me on was a conviction that I had a powerful and utterly original story to tell. It was what pushed me to complete the first draft within five months, to improve the story over the following year, to find an extremely competent editor, Margaret Ashworth, a former Daily Mail colleague, who shared the same belief in the book as I did, and then to bring it to market. I don't think at any point during this process did I say I was writing a 21st century Catholic novel. In retrospect, I suppose the book was Catholic from the beginning, because I had sought deliberately to imbue my characters with souls. I sought to portray evil as I have experienced or perceived it myself, both internally and externally, and I wanted my characters to respond to it in a way which was broadly realistic, now and then with a little bravery, sometimes with recklessness or cowardice, but most of the time with doubts, hesitancy, uncertainty, confusion, and a sense of helplessness. I wanted them to be upset and to feel regret when they got things wrong, or to grow crueler and harder of heart when they committed acts of evil consciously and deliberately and without remorse. I wanted to show how one or two of them could find healing and redemption as they struggled against all the odds to put things right. When Calvin is heroic, therefore, it is not because he solves murders like Father Brown or beats up, catches or kills bad guys like any mainstream hero of any story in secular culture. I wanted to write something altogether more original than that. Calvin becomes a hero because, although just as flawed and open to temptation as any one of us, he strives first and foremost to overcome his concupiscence, his disordered desires, and his passions, and his wrath. Even as he joins battle to unmask a serial killer, his bigger fight, as he knows, is to contend with what comes from within. It is from the heart, Jesus teaches us in St. Mark's Gospel, that evil intentions emerge. I don't think I will, will be ruining the book for those of you who have not yet read it when I reveal that his struggle begins with loneliness and develops into a sexual obsession against which he fights. He's not only infatuated by the beauty of Emerald Essien, a nurse he is asked to track down by campaigning families, but is also unable to shake off the idea that she's an incarnation or a type of Judith of Bethulia, the biblical femme fatale. As a contemplative with, dog, with their dogmatic belief in good and evil, he is probably most attuned to his spiritual struggle than any of the other characters are with theirs. The worldly characters act more within the imminent dimension, but we nevertheless see them instructed by and responding to their consciences, or ignoring them altogether. Jenny Bradshaw, a journalist and a non-Christian, is moved, for example, by the suffering of families of patients who have died suspiciously, and is persuaded to become their champion. And Emerald, who has a flawed past, deliberately turns away from further participation in evil to attempt to atone for errors by striving to do good, even at great risk to herself. I hope that the characters of the Beast of Bethulia Park and the interior struggles they endure have given the book both a Catholic and a psychological character, and that they resonate with the truth of real human experience, thereby making the story accessible to everyone. We are all created with a tremendous capacity for truth, and in truth we also recognize beauty and goodness. And I'm encouraged that some of the most generous praise I have received for this book has come not from Catholics, but from non-Catholics. The Beast of Bethulia Park is a book for everyone, but with some very strong Catholic themes. Of course, I would not expect everyone to go for something like this. Some would still prefer to have no religion at all, or to project religion as the enemy of progress, and indeed of humanity itself. I would say that the significance of the late Hilary Mantel's remark that nowadays the Catholic Church is not an institution for respectable people is that within the secular culture the Catholic faith is once again a source of scandal. It is viewed in the words of Dana Gioia, the American Catholic poet, once again as disreputable, déclassé and retrograde. 
It means that it's nearly impossible to, today to get a Catholic novel published. During the long journey of my own novel to press, I gradually became aware that mainstream publishers in particular are not well disposed to books with religious content. Such realization ended my constant wavering as the book improved about whether the beast should be a book for the secular market or one informed more openly by my faith and therefore chiefly of interest to Catholics and perhaps other Christians. I felt that I faced a choice between staying true to the original inspiration behind the story and its characters or hiding everything beneath a veil or removing such content voluntarily before it was purged as a possible condition for publication. I would not say that explicit religious content is that always either necessary or desirable, but I had decided that it was important for this particular work that the religious elements were retained. And on completing our advanced draft of the Beast of Pethulia Park, I chose to submit it to Gracewing in the hope and expectation that the publisher would warm to the Catholic themes rather than reject them. Even so, the Beast of Bethulia Park was set up as a secular thriller and continues to read that way. I had not realised quite what a Catholic novel I'd written until the Reverend Dr. Paul Hafner, the editorial director of Gracewing, told me he accepted the book because, although a crime story involving murder, adultery, drug-taking and so on, it was underpinned, in his words, by beautiful theology and such classic Christian themes as a struggle between good and evil of sin and redemption, of temptation and the working of grace, of conscience and of the various dimensions of love, putting it in the same category of story, as stories by the likes of Chesterton or Green. I was at the time shocked to be compared to such luminaries. Some Catholics, I admit, might at times find this story disturbing, but good fiction should have the power to be disturbing. It also matters to me that the story, like the characters, was vaguely true to life while remaining entertaining, informative, pacey gripping. My quest for authenticity, I de deliberately avoided what Flannery O'Connor, perhaps America's greatest Catholic novelist of the 20th century, and a woman who would read St. Thomas Aquinas every night, was described as pious trash. I wouldn't buy or read such novels, so I had no wish to write one myself. Christian realism, on the other hand, is a different matter. I would say that it is far more exciting than even secular literature, because, done well, it plums the depths of the human psyche spirit which are often ignored overlooked or simply not acknowledged because it unpacks and explores the real workings of the mind and soul i'll speak more about what constitutes good catholic literature in the second part of this broadcast in my opinion but for now it's sufficient to say that we if we want a thriving catholic literary literary culture our books have to be good it will not do to have the false the dull and the sterile masquerading as catholic literature at the expense of true art. If a so-called Catholic novel makes you feel that you've entered a garden, only to feel that the lawn and the plants and everything in it are plastic, then it has failed to meet the standards of truth and beauty. A character who does not feel genuine human emotions, bad as well as good, priests included, are not exemplars of virtue or cardboard cutouts. All souls are marked by the human condition, which means they experience the struggle between good and evil, raging now and at the hour of their death. A Catholic novel is not one which smugly asserts that such souls are already saved, or depicts Eden before the fall when, when there is no sin, which dumps the characters back in paradise at the end in a, a lived happily after, ever, ever after scenario, or one in which characters are so heroically virtuous that they neither sin nor are tempted by sin. These could never be stories which ring with truth or shine with redemptive beauty. A Catholic novel captures the drama and indeed the danger of existence, as well as the recapitulation of all things in Christ. The Beast of Bethulia Park is my debut novel, and I am working on a sequel which will be built on similar foundations. I hope that one day I can come back here to tell you about that one too. In the meantime, here is one of the many songs mentioned in The Beast of Bethulia Park. It's including chapter 10, uh, which I've called The Fifth Beetle, and in which Father Calvin meets Emerald in Liverpool as they begin their quest in earnest to unmask and bring to justice the murderous Dr. Klein, an adventure through which their fates become inextricably interwoven, even though they are remarkably different people. Throughout the book, their relationship changes and develops as danger draws ever closer. But in this chapter, they're just getting to know each other. Following a conversation initiated by the sight of Andy Edwards' Beatles statue on the city's waterfront, Emerald plays mind games by John Lennon 
from 1973 from a jukebox of a Liverpool pub. Here it is. If you're just tuning in to Radio Maria, this is your reminder that you're listening to Just Life. And if you're wondering why you're hearing some John Lennon on the airwaves this Friday morning, we've just been talking to Catholic journalist and author Simon Caldwell, who's in the midst of telling us about his novel, The Beast of Bethulia Park, um, exploring some of the, the themes that run throughout the novel and diving into the greater question of the role of, of the Catholic novel itself um, in the 20th and 21st century. So Simon, we'll, we'll hand back off to you, hand back over to you. Thank you. What makes a novel Catholic? This is a debate which has been going on for more than a century and has not yet been resolved. One could look for guidance to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which defines art, which of course includes literature, as a form of practical wisdom, uniting knowledge and skill, to give form to the truth of reality in a language accessible to sight and hearing. The implication here is that Catholic fiction must be truthful or reflective of truth. The truth of reality for Catholics, however, does not simply concern what theologians refer to as the imminent dimension, but also the transcendent dimension. G.K. Chesterton certainly seemed to think that the inclusion of transcendental moral truths was vital to the crafting of realistic fiction. The Cambridge academic professor Michael D. Hurley, in his introduction to the Penguin Classics edition of the complete Father Brown stories, noted that Chesterton deliberately omitted Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from his list of exemplars of detective fiction, even though he thought Silver Blaze, the Sherlock Holmes story, was a model of the genre. This story concerns the theft of a valuable racehorse and the murder of the trainer guarding him. Everybody concentrates on possible sus suspects, but it is Holmes who works out that the horse is the culprit. It was brilliantly conceived and executed, yet for Chesterton, according to Hurley, there was something missing, namely a reference back to serious truth. Flannery O'Connor held the view, however, that faith alone does not justify Catholic writing. What is also needed is talent, good stories told well. The Catholic novelist doesn't have to be a saint, she said. He doesn't even have to be a Catholic. He does, unfortunately, have to be a novelist. O'Connor took the view that great Catholic literature is not didactic, that it doesn't preach, but that the moral judgment of a competent Catholic writer will naturally coincide with his or her dramatic judgment, and therefore good stories become vehicles to convey deep and salient truths. She was sometimes criticised for her brutal stories, but would argue that there is nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism, and that the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it emotionally. The obligation of the Christian writer, she says, is to the truth of what can happen in life, and not to the reader, not to the reader's taste, not to the reader's happiness, not even to the reader's morals. She was part of the American Catholic of an American Catholic literary movement of the last century, which also included such authors as F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, and Jack Kerouac. A parallel movement here in Britain gave us Chesterton Green, Evelyn Waugh, J.R. Tolkien. Robert Hugh Benson, David Jones, Muriel Spark, Elizabeth Jennings, Anthony Burgess, and Piers Paul Reed, among others. While in France, the revival in Catholic literature was led by Francois Mauriac, and in Ireland by Frank O'Connor, Flann O'Brien, and Patrick Kavanagh. Although there are many great Catholic writers still at work today, it is safe to say that the place of Catholic literature across the Western world has declined with Christianity more generally. This phenom phenomenon was examined by Dana Joya, in an excellent series of 10 essays called The Catholic Writer Today, which was published in the First Things Journal in 2013. Joy pointed out that the golden days of American Catholic literature shared four characteristics. Novelists who publicly identified themselves as faithful Catholics, a cultural establishment which accepted Catholicism as a permissible artistic identity, a dynamic and vital Catholic literary and intellectual tradition visibly at work in the culture, and a, cult and a critical milieu which actively read, discussed, and supported the best Catholic writings. Today, maintains Joya, not one of these four observations remains true. The same is surely the case in our own country.
Dior's essay, essays inspired much debate and reflection from Catholics who love their literature. But in January, Larry Denninger, the American Catholic author of Songs for Clara, wrote an article for Our Sunday Visitor in which he concluded that 10 years on, the situation hasn't improved. And in no doubt, uh, no doubt in surprise to many, he also round on Catholics for contributing to such decline by their own censoriousness. Denninger wondered aloud whether the ascendant current Catholic literosphere is partly complicit. A gatekeeper mentality for what qualifies as truly Catholic literature is unhelpful, he says. If Green published The Heart of the Matter or The End of the Affair Today, would those books be considered appropriately Catholic? What about Flannery O'Connor's dark stories or Evelyn Wars? Heaven's Gate may be narrow, he continued, but Catholic literature should be as broadly diverse as possible and judged in the main by only one criterion, quality. Is the novel well-written, with compelling characters who waver between vice and virtue and battle the demons in their lives, not necessarily triumphing over them for instructive and identifiable drama exists in the battle, not the victory? Is the ending uncertain yet hopeful? Is truth revealed through action rather than via debating contests among characters? Some good Catholic fiction writers are getting published, he said, and the culture needs them. It doesn't need and won't read apologetics and dialectics disguised as fiction. It doesn't need stories about saintly believers and their pietistic lives. That's what the lives of the saints are for, and those are necessary, don't get me wrong, but knowing a story's end before it begins makes for poor fiction. What's needed are stories, he said, about faithful sinners and doubters undergoing Jacobean wrestling matches. Stories of the hard struggle of loving one's neighbour, the harder battle of loving one's enemy, the impossible seeming task of loving God, and the temptation between wide and narrow paths. That's where every human being lives. Doubt, intention with faith. Despair, intention with hope. Hardness, intention with charity. I couldn't agree more with Denninger. If we want a flourishing Catholic literary culture, we need to get behind our authors. And I'm not saying this only for my benefit. We must stop scouring every writer for impure and impious thoughts as we're at an historic juncture where we could contribute to the demise of our great literary tradition by being puritanical. Divisions between Catholics over the merits of various works of art have always existed, and long before Green was taken to task over his depiction for the once fornicating whiskey priest, the works of Caravaggio were, der were derided. For instance, his depiction of the Madonna of Loretta was a barefoot everyday Roman mother. Few people today find this painting objectionable or take umbrage with the power and the glory. Yet Green was so heavily criticised for this work when it first came out in 1940 that he felt compelled to explain himself in a piece for the Catholic Herald. He told readers that the character was based upon a priest he had seen on his tour of Mexico during the persecution of the Catholic Church there in the 1930s. A man so consumed by fear and alcohol that he was drunk when he baptised a baby. Green was motivated, he said, to paint the world as it was, rather than how it should be, hinting cheekily that his co-religionist detractors shared the last position with the red-shirted utopians he depicted as the bloody and self-regarding villains of his novel. He also said he was puzzled but utterly unrepentant by criticism of a sordid scene in a crowded prison cell. Hell has often been drawn by Catholic theologians in far coarser lines than I have used, he wrote. To say that the coarseness is unnecessary, a favourite word with reviewers, is to me meaningless. One cannot indicate filth by a cipher one must describe. Every adult knows or should know that there is a world of difference between gratuitous sex and violence and such scenes when they are necessary in the context of a story and when they provide the darkness that better illuminates what is good, true and beautiful. It is true that Pope St. Paul VI, writing in Humani Vitae in 1968, warned Catholics against everything, I quote, which arouses men's baser passions and encourages low moral standards, as well as every obscenity in the written word and every form of indecency on the stage and screen. The pontiff said that such things should be condemned publicly and unanimously by all those who have at heart the advance of civilization and the safeguarding of the outstanding values of the human spirit. It is quite absurd, St. Paul VI wrote, to defend this kind of depravity in the name of art or culture, or by pleading the liberty which may be allowed in this field by the public authorities. While I accept that Catholics should be on their guard against obscenity and depravity, 
I would add that we must be very careful about narrow definitions lest we hamper or destroy the creativity of potentially our greatest storytellers. Was war obscene when he wrote about homosexuality long before it was legalized in Brideshead Revisited? Or abortion in the Sword of Honor trilogy when that too was still illegal? I really don't think he was. The question of whether art of one kind or another is obscene really ought to depend on how it is conceived and executed. I was delighted that the majority of those who have read my novel have liked it, and I am extremely pleased that it has been reviewed so positively. But there is a minority who didn't get the point. A few have objected to the sexual content, even though the little that there is is done tastefully. Others did not like a story which dealt with the pursuit of a doctor who kills elderly, disabled and seriously ill patients because they did not like criticism of the National Health Service. One person couldn't stomach a scene of animal cruelty, though this same critic was silent on the more numerous scenes of cruelty to human beings. Let me be clear. I am not so thin-skinned that I can't live with criticism. I raised the point about censorship because it points once more at the heart of what a Catholic novel is and what it is not, and what it might look like in our postmodern age of inverted values and hypersensitivity. I would like to return to the essays of Joy, who delineates what he believes um, Catholic literature actually is. Catholic literature is rarely pious, he wrote, in ways that trouble or, or in ways that trouble or puzzle both Protestant and secular readers. Catholic writing tends to be comic, rowdy, rude, and even violent. Catholics generally tend to write about sinners rather than saints. Catholic writers tend to see humanity struggling in a fallen world. They combine a longing for grace and redemption with a deep sense of human imperfection and sin. Evil exists, but the physical world is not evil. Nature is sacramental, shimmering with signs of sacred things. Indeed, all reality is mysteriously charged with the invisible presence of God. Catholics perceive suffering as redemptive, at least when born in emulation of Christ's passion and death. Catholics also generally take the long view of things, looking back while also gazing forward towards eternity. Catholicism is also intrinsically communal, extending to a mystical sense of continuity between the living and the dead. Finally, there is a habit of spiritual self-scrutiny and moral examination of conscience. He complains that today there is a crippling naivety among many religious writers and even editors that saintly intentions compensate for weak writing. Such misplaced faith or charity is folly, he wrote. The Catholic writers must have the passion, talent and the ingenuity to master the craft in strictly secular terms while never forgetting the spiritual responsibilities, possibilities and responsibilities of art. <coughs> A failure to produce good fiction will spell the slow death of the Catholic literary tradition in the Anglophone world. And censorship within or without the church will accelerate such a trend. Will it matter if this tradition dies? I would say so. You only have to turn on terrestrial television, even at what was once called primetime family viewing hours, to find oneself overwhelmed by a tsunami of ideological propaganda, which the purveyors seldom take the trouble to disguise. If you subscribe to a big channel like Disney or Netflix, it is similarly very easy to come across programs which surely fit well into the category of true obscenity against which Pope St. Paul warned the church all those years ago. One does not have to look that far to find evil celebrated. Secular fiction, as I have mentioned, is often a little different. And some of the most graphically sexualized materials deliberately pitched at young teenagers and adolescents. The, the ideological stranglehold, which welcomes excessive license in such writing, is at the same time producing homogeneity among authors as it constricts alternative expression. As there is a link between truth and beauty, there's also an inextricable bond between truth and freedom. The rise in the position of new ideologies, which deny so much of what is objectively true, would suggest that our freedom is at risk too. It is therefore madness for the Catholic Church to completely unwillingly withdraw its patronage of art and culture, to cede and surrender its place to an aggressively secular society, and crazier still for Christians of any hue to effectively become quislings by joining the frenzy for censorship. As the West drifts inexorably closer to totalitarianism, we need good Catholic writers more than ever. We need them to tell the truth about the world in which we live to debunk the falsehoods around them, 
to make sense from the confusion, deception and madness in which we are frequently engulfed, to unmask real scandal and fraudulence, to satirize and poke fun at the pompous and the powerful, and to tear holes in the darkness of our times so as to let light and truth flood in. We need such writers to demonstrate to other people of goodwill, who might not be Catholics or even Christians, that there is more to this life than is presented to them by cynical and practical atheism, that a better way is offered to them, and that they are loved by beauty and truth itself, a beauty and truth which saves. All of us can support contemporary fiction and add our weight to any possible revival simply by reading it. But Catholic authors like myself have a long way to go to convincing the people of our generation that good Catholic literature did not fade and die with the titans of the 20th century Renaissance. But that it, is st it still exists, that it is still here, that in our midst are writers with exciting stories to tell about how God might work with the people of our own age, and that new writers with similar gifts to Green, War, Cheston, Tolkien and O'Connor might be out there, just waiting to be discovered and recognised. It's worth the struggle. A Catholic novel must survive into the 21st century. It is simply too good and too important to lose. So back to the Beast of Bethulia Park. Here's another song which is mentioned in the story when Ralph Parker, a character who makes up his meagre delivery driver salary by singing it as an Elton John tribute act, tells of how he managed to sneak in a little number by his real idol, Glen Campbell, when performing alongside his friend, Tony G, an Asian Elvis at a local restaurant. After that, I'd be delighted to take calls from listeners. This great song is from 1967 and was also performed by Elvis. It's called Gentle On My Mind. It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. That makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. This is Just Life here on Radio Maria. If you're just tuning in, we've been talking this morning with Catholic journalist and author Simon Caldwell, hearing about his novel, The Beast of Bethulia Park, some of the Catholic themes, um, and the wider question of the role of the Catholic novel. A reminder that at this point in Just Life, it's always great to hear from our listeners. So if you've got a question and would like to ring in, the number is 01223375564. Perhaps a quick question to start us, start us off, Simon. You've mentioned there a lot of Catholic novelists, Chesterton, Green, Tolkien, um, some great influences um, on Catholic literature. Are there any particular authors that have influenced you in your in your work, or that you'd draw attention to? Um, yeah, well, besides the the, the Catholic greats that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. there, um, I mean, I, I was as a, as a child, I read avidly. Um, so, uh, but uh, I, I, I was a big fan of Joseph Conrad. Mm -hmm. I, I've lo loved Conrad and Conrad. Um, you know, he's never thought of as a Catholic author, and I don't think he, he ever discussed his religion. And of course, he, he changed his name to cover up the fact that he was his, um, he was Polish. Um, uh, but probably, it's, we've always lived with um, anti-Catholic prejudice of one um, one source or another. And I think in, in the 20th century Renaissance, it, it, in the West, it, it eased off a little bit. Uh, so it um, became quite fashionable. So, so that's when you had these great converts coming through uh, who, who just talked about and wrote about the faith quite openly. Um, but I think um, Conrad predated that, and he, he covered up, I think, his religious instinct. But I would, uh, I've always thought that um, The Heart of Darkness, for example, is a profoundly Catholic novel. Um, superficially, I, Adam Hochschild, who, who wrote um, King Leopold's Ghosts, um, the book investigating the, the atrocities committed in, Belg in um, the Congo by um, um, Belgian colonists, uh, describe it really as reportage. You know, uh, comrades sailed up the Congo River um, and saw these horrible things, um, uh, and then wrote the story about about Mr. Kurtz being being relieved of his duty, which then went on to become this great film, Apocalypse Now. Um, but really, the, the, um, on a deeper level, he, he's writing about original sin. Um, I mean, Kurtz is um, a man who's um, he's decided for himself what's good and evil. You can see how he can enrich himself 
far beyond any of the other people who are more principled. And he does so, but ends up staring um, his own corruption in the face. And his final, his dying words are the horror, the horror. Uh, I was moved in a, in a very, very profound way by that book. And it's, it's always stayed with me. And I read it again quite, quite uh, recently. And, and I, I, I'm convinced that it was a, a Catholic novel. The other person who was a great, um, who, who, who I liked enormously and um, had, a, had a very strong influence on the Beast of Bethulia part was an American crime writer called George V. Higgins. And for me, he, he wrote what I thought was, is the perfect crime novel. Uh, and that's the, the Friends of Eddie Coyle. And it is, is just absolutely brilliant dialogue, action, pace, everything's there. Wonderful storyteller. And very, very realistic. Um, okay. <laughs> Thank you. And you mentioned in um, while talking about the heart of darkness there that that power, that power of being moved, and that good fiction should be disturbing and should be provocative. What are your thoughts on sort of current debates about uh, censoring books in school, or maybe making books not so provocative and not so disturbing? Um, and how does that come into tension with this idea of um, yeah, well, we, 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 there's, there's contradictory movements at work. I mean, you've got, um, in some ways, the people are seeking more license. They want to write more Lord stuff for young people, which I think is, is wrong. I don't think we any books aimed at sexual, um, um, encouraging young, the young into premature sexual activity is, is, a, is a form of grooming, to, to my mind. And I think that if you wanted to, that's where censorship belongs. You know, these the, the books like that shouldn't be allowed, should be. Um, but I, I, I just think that it's wrong that, 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 that the young are being, are being set up in this way. And that's where censorship should kick in. But to censor, for example, J.K. Rowling, I think J.K. Rowling is a, is a terrific um, writer. Uh, I don't agree, agree with everything she believes in. And, and you know, I don't even agree with my own wife about a lot of things. But to, to, so I think, she, I think if she's writing adult fiction, she can say what she wants. Mm. So, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I saw a chap on TV saying, don't buy these books. And I just thought, well, how preposterous. And <clears throat> I wonder, reflecting on your your work as a Catholic journalist, um, you talked about the importance of having Catholic literature and the role of Catholic fiction in sort of shining shining light and having these transcendental truths that shape them. How about journalism? Do you think journalists have their own equivalent um, moral duty, so to speak? Um, well... Uh, journalists, I mean, the, these days there's an awful lot of people um, who, who, who try to handle journalism in the forms of blogs, writing blogs, and, and a lot of it, a lot of it is, is is what they think. You know, I I think this, I think that. The, the, the internet is absolutely full of it. There's, there's so much of it that is 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 saturated. But journalism isn't really like that. I mean, when no, or, or judge journalism isn't really like that. When when you are um, a news reporter, you you don't really show what. You, you hide your views. You know, you've got to report the facts as as, as they are, and 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 present um, the ob objective truth. And I think journalists fail when they when when um, they don't do that. Mm -hmm. When when once once they decide to take a side, it becomes propaganda. Mm -hmm. But when when really you've got you've got to present the facts to the reader and let the reader make their own mind up, but prefer accurate and impartial. Mm -hmm. If you, if you wanted to express an opinion, then you, you do it in the form of a comment or, or a feature or, or news analysis. You wouldn't do it in a news story. And how do you see Catholic media fitting into that landscape you've written for, and write for the Catholic Heralds? Yeah, yeah, I'm st I, still, I still do. I still think, um, I think the, the Catholic press is a wonderful apostolate. It's a necessary apostolate. Um, I, I think we should treasure it and support it. I think if we lost it, it would be a terrible loss. So you know we have a we still have um, a, a, a variety of opinions, a spectrum of, of publications which cover um, you know the, the um, a variety of tastes. I would I would encourage people to support um, the the newspaper or magazine of their choice. Go out and buy it. We, without we, if people don't do that, it will die and we'll lose it. Mm -hmm. I very much agree. <laughs> um, we have a question coming in from Cambridge. We're going to hand over to them to hear it. Oh, hello, can you hear me? Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, all good, thank you. Oh, oh wonderful. Simon, I was wondering if you could have any suggestions for young adult readers, like pre, uh, teen, uh, good Catholic fiction for teenagers. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't read, um, 
uh, an awful lot of, of good classic fiction for teenagers, but I, be, I believe um, there there are some some um, a few people writing that kind of thing. I think Karina Turner is uh, writes classic fiction for te- uh, young teenagers, and um, Fiorella Nash writes writes detective fiction as well, which might which might be um, um, be suitable. So those are the two two names that spring to mind. Thank but, you, um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, do you think well, with the teenage writing, right. do you think um, you have and that's to? That's just a reminder that if you would like to ring in for the last eight minutes or so, the number is zero one two two three three seven five five six four. Um, so just a question there about recommendations um, for Catholic teenage literature. So something to to keep in mind. Um, and you mentioned yourself, Simon, that you were writing a sequel. I wonder if you could give yeah. us a a sneak peek of um, what are some of the themes that you're thinking about for book two? Okay, well, um, the, the sequel is, is going to have the same characters as um, more or less the same characters as the the um, the, the debut, um, except with a different set of villains and and a few and a few new um, uh, figures as well. So you've got Calvin Baines and Emerald. Is uh, the, the the relationship changes again straight from the word go, um, uh, and uh, Jenny Bradshaw's there, and um, what, so what, a, a few of the others, and it's. It, 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 I take it up. The 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 piece of the field of park finishes on on um, February twenty ninth, um, twenty twenty, which is it was a leap year, and uh, the, this one opens on March the first. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, again, it's it's a, a psychological thriller um, with multiple layers. Um, and I'm about a third the way through at the moment, um, and this time I'm, I'm looking at one of the issues I'm looking at is human trafficking, modern Monday scourge of human trafficking and um, child sexual exploitation. The, 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 that, that's the the evil which they're confronting in this particular story. Um, it's proven to be quite a, a difficult one to to write because I'm, I'm a lot more self-critical now than I was when I, I, I sat down and wrote the, the Beast. I mean, I just did it kind of blindly when I when I wrote the Beast, and then, then corrected it later. But now I kind of know straight away. Oh, yeah, that works. That doesn't work, and it just takes me a, a lot longer to write it. And and also, um, I'm I'm suddenly extremely busy. So there'll be some weeks where I only get to sit down for one night or a Sunday morning to write it, then you know, all the time I'm looking for that those, you know, that, that window of opportunity where I can sit down and write for three or four days, but that seldom happens. So I'm about about a third of the way through. Um I hope I, I, it turns out to be a, a good story. I've got some very um what I think are very good and original ideas. Uh, and it's just really just a question of getting it down there and and, and, and getting to work on on the, on a, a really good draft. Um so with a bit of luck, um, I might can finish that um, possibly early next year. The go the rate rate that we're progressing at the moment. Well, we'd look forward to having you back on Radio Maria and <laughs> telling us all about all about the sequel. Um, and you mentioned a bit there your creative process and sort of juggling juggling this alongside other bits of work. Uh, I wonder if you could say a bit, um, yeah, about your your routine as an author or how you fit that in or. Um, yeah, I mean, well, what I like to do is, is work in the morning. Um, it's when my mind's most fresh, um, and it, so, so if I if I can, if I, if I get the opportunity, I'll try to write something every day in the morning. But then sometimes, you know, you might get an evening where it's all quiet, there's nothing happening, I can really, really blitz it. But um, yeah, it's. Um, I have um, like a, a skeleton idea of, of of where I want the story to go and uh, and how the characters um, develop. So so I, I get the uh, the chapters out and then I write the chapter and then I keep improving the chapter and keep going back to you improve the the quality of the language, you improve the the, the dialogue, you make it um, so that it, it crackles, you know. And what you, what, what a, um, journalism does teach you, which is which is, which is um, a good skill to have when you become a an author is is how to open a story well and how to end it well so so i think that's that's key to um each chapter should really sort of stand alone as as, as something which is exciting so that you you're drawn in straight away and you you the reader's hooked and then when the the chapter closes they want to read the next one mm-hmm. because they want to know what happens mm-hmm. and um 
and when I was writing the beast, for example, there was it was quite flawed the first draft, and I passed it around to a few people, and they, they don't some of them didn't really like the thought was a bit too dark and a bit too violent, and so and so on. But they, but they, there was one person who said to me, he said, you know, I, I sat there till two o'clock in the morning till my eyes smarted because I just needed to know what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but but so so. That told me that yeah, there's something there. If if, if somebody wants to finish it, if someone wants to know that then then it, then it works. Then the really what I had to do then was get it right. Mm-hmm. And um, that takes you know the, the, whole, the whole. But that's just a crazy process. I think it goes. I'm not surprised most writers go through something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for a last couple of minutes, a, a classic weekend newspaper question: What's your current read? <laughs> Newspapers. Oh well, what what book are you currently oh, reading? Oh, what current read? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm currently reading the the, the uh, complete works of, of Flannery O'Connor. I managed to get the first edition of the book that she won a major American prize posthumously for. So I'm working my way right through the, the whole lot of those. Um, and then uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to write read after that. I've got a few lined up. <laughs> Great, thank you, thank you very much for joining us this morning on Just Life, Simon. It's been wonderful hearing all about the Beast of Bethulia Park. Um, an unusual Friday morning, I have to admit, <laughs> um, but a very, very enjoyable one. And talking about the the role of Catholic literature and the power to, of Catholic literature to move and to to really grapple with those transcendental truths of our faith. So, thank you very much for joining us, Simon. Thank you. This was a Radio Maria podcast. If you enjoyed it, do please click like and subscribe on your podcast provider or leave us a review. Every bit of feedback helps increase our visibility and allows us to reach more people with the message of Christ's saving truth. And if you don't already, you can listen to Radio Maria live either online or on DAB in selected regions of the UK. We'd love for you to call in live and be part of the conversation. See our website, radiomariaengland.uk, for more details and a full schedule of programmes. And do please consider making a donation so that we can keep making more programmes like this. We are completely dependent upon the generosity of our listeners.